You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. You can take your seats and let's grab our Bibles and turn to Mark 13. If you don't have a Bible, please reach in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark 13 on page 849 in those Bibles. And as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you on behalf of our Eastern Europe churches. We raised over $43,000 to help the Ukraine refugees and help the churches in Eastern Europe. And I think that's something we can clap and celebrate God's faithfulness. Amen. I was talking to Adi Rusnak, the pastor of the Bucharest Church we planted six years ago, and we were texting this morning, and they had 20-plus Ukrainians there that didn't know English or Romanian, and you had the rest of the Romanians who didn't know Russian, and so they were a motley crew, but God worked despite that, and there was such a, a, a spirit of fellowship, such a spirit of unity despite all that is going on in their world around them. So thank you for contributing to that. I sent an email out that has some pictures and videos that I hope were encouraging to you. And then also, thank you for your prayers for the Flum family. They continue to pray and see progress being made for their son, uh, who is in Ukraine as an orphan, to be brought back to the States. Continue to pray for them. That process is very fluid right now, and they covet your prayers. But you know, as I think about what's going on in Ukraine, as I think about what happened at Olathe East this last week, I'm reminded that we all have a spectrum of being able to handle overwhelming circumstances. Some people are able to bear up with a lot going on in their lives. Others, just a slight change in their rhythms and comfort can potentially derail them. But I think the passage this morning is intended to help all of us, no matter where we find ourselves, on this spectrum. And to set that up, I want to read the entire chapter of Mark 13, and I hope that as I do, you will follow along. I hope that as I do, you will pick out words and phrases that perhaps you have questions about. I hope that as I do, you will actually see that there are phrases and sections of this chapter that you probably have long-held understanding of what they mean that perhaps this study will confront Let's lay aside our traditions and our presuppositions and let the word of God speak to us this morning. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and Rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the rooftop not go down. Enter into his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But... In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves... You know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, before we study this section, I want to put a quote up on the screen by Kent Hughes from his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He says, The fact is, we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the naughty problems of the Olivet Discourse. The study of it requires proper humility and a willingness to admit we do not know everything. Now, at this point, you probably read that and have various responses to it. This quote is alluding to this chapter as well as 
the chapter in Matthew and in Luke where Jesus' words are recorded, but it also alludes to some details of the end times. And some of you might be sitting here and hear that phrase, the end times, and simply be aware of it, knowing that there is a belief that there will be the end of times and a lot of bad things that happen, but for you, you don't know much about it. You've never really studied about it. For others of you as Christians, you know that the Bible speaks of the end times, and you started studying out yourself, but as you studied it, you realize that what Kent Hughes says is true. There are naughty problems, not naughty like N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, but knots of a tree. And so for you as Christians, you say, I'm aware of the end times, but I'm going to run the flag of Jesus up the flagpole and just believe in Jesus and leave all the rest to the scholars and the theologians, and you know what? God will figure it out in the end. And then there are others of you that are like, finally, Pastor Jeff talks about the end times. You from day one have been wanting me to preach through Daniel or Revelation. And you are very familiar with the books. You're very familiar with the movies, some of them professional, some not so much. You go out to YouTube constantly, and you know all the channels about the end times. You love the conferences, and you are passionate about the end times. Well, the fact is, is that the details that Jesus provides his disciples, the details that Mark provides his readers, are intended for a specific purpose. I would submit to you that when we are confronted with life-impacting circumstances, we often want to run to certain questions, and we all in this community experienced that on Friday, didn't we? As texts began to come out about the shooting at Olathe East, we began to ask the questions, why, when, where, how, what? I was at a bank just moments after the text started coming out, and the bank tellers and the Customers, we're all talking about it. We often want to ask those questions, and so did the disciples. Look at what it says in verse 4. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs? This is natural for human beings to ask these questions, and Jesus does not rebuke the questions, but he points the disciples and Mark's readers, and us to the most important question. You can see the big idea in your notes. We want to know the what, the why, the when, and the how. What we need to know is who. So what we're going to see in this chapter is that Jesus is going to show to his disciples and Mark's readers and us what we need to, first of all, understand. He shows us what we need to understand. It says in verse 1, and as he, Jesus, came out of the temple. The temple for us is an abstract concept. It's sections of kings that we usually skip over when we see all the detail about the courtyards and the architectural design and the the styles and, and all of the different accoutrements. Well, that wasn't in my notes. All of the different aspects of the Holy of Holies. Let me show a picture up on the screen of a model that over in Israel they have built. This is intended to reflect what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Christ. And you can see over here on the right picture that this area on the bottom right is the old city of David. 
The, the castle of David, the palace, would have been just up the way, just short of that big building that you can see to the north. But here over on the left, you can actually see that, that, big, that big building is the temple courtyard, the temple complex. And just to give us an idea, the temple complex relative to this building, this building is around 27,000 square feet. It's a pretty good-sized building. But the temple complex was 1.6 million square feet. Our land here, not including all of the easements, is about 8.5 acres. The temple courtyard took up over 36 acres. This was a massive footprint on the holy city of Jerusalem. The temple, you can see in that massive complex, would rise even up above that to 150 feet. The the edges and the surface of it were plated with gold so that at certain times of the day with the sun shining on it just right, you could not even look at the temple. The stones that comprised the temple, some of them measured 45 feet in length. This was a massive building. It is one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so it's no wonder that as the disciples come out of Jerusalem, out of the temple with Jesus, and they're heading out the eastern gate toward the Mount of Olives, that one of the disciples says, teacher, look at the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings. This was a source of national pride. So the words of Jesus to those disciples were shocking. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Mind blown. This was a source of national pride. This was something that had been rebuilt that was the presence of God. This was very important to the Jews. So for the Messiah, the disciples had recognized him as such to say this this massive building, this, this place that is so holy, this place that is so important to Israel, this place where God actually dwells will be utterly destroyed. That's what the phrase means. It doesn't mean literally no stone will be on top of each other. It's hyperbole. Now what hyperbole is, is it's a phrase or a description that is intended to portray something that isn't literal. So Jesus is not saying that literally no stone will be on top of each other. He's using hyperbole to say that building and this structure will be completely destroyed. And so this is an impactful statement. And so the disciples are natural in their questioning. But if you'll look at verse 4 with me, this is the most important verse in this entire chapter. Because it sets up the context. The disciples say, tell us when these things. What are the these things? It's what Jesus referred to in verse 2. It's when the temple will be destroyed. That is very important. But the disciples move past that just like we would. They don't just want to know the date. They want to know what does the process look leading up to it. And so they say, what will be the sign that these things, the destruction of the temple, are about to happen? What's interesting is that Jesus' response takes place with a posture and in a location that is very important. I'll have the team put a picture up on the screen. This was taken when I was in Israel in 2017 from the top of the Mount of Olives. 
This is historically believed to be the place where Jesus sat and gave the Olivet Discourse. You can see that gold dome structure is a, is a Muslim temple, but that's where the temple of Herod was actually located. And Jesus sat likely in this place so that they could clearly see into the temple complex to be able to see that massive and beautiful structure of the temple. And he began to teach why that is important is because Jesus is taking the posture and the function of a teacher. This is very important. And a teacher intends for students to understand. When I played baseball in Virginia during college, I stayed with a couple. The husband was a retired FBI agent. He was also a professor at the local university, and he and I shared a love for the Civil War. So whenever I had off days, he and I would get in his Crown Victoria. For those of you who don't know what that is, that is a massive car with plush seats. And so as a college student, working full-time and then having late night games, I, I was desperate to have as much sleep as I possibly could. So I would ask him questions that I knew would cause him to wax eloquent. Uh, Professor, tell me about the Pinkertons. Well, let me tell you about the Pinkertons. And I would... See, I would ask the questions because I wanted sleep, not because I wanted understanding. Because understanding, I'll ask the team to put up a quote... Often the path to understanding is more work and it takes longer than what we want, but the journey is worth it. What's interesting is that the questions of why, when, what, and how often are not ultimately questions for understanding. They're questions for us to be able to wrap our brains around something to be able to quickly move on to the next. We are interested in the charts that beautifully unpack what God's future is for us. So we can say, okay, I get it. I understand Revelation now. We want to know when God says something about our future, we want to be able to wrap our brains around it. And the, the reason for that is not ultimately for us to have biblical understanding necessarily. It's for us to be able to get answers quickly to our questions. But Jesus wants us to understand in fact, look at what he unpacks to the disciples. He says, verse 5, he began to say to them, see. Would you underline the word see? Because this is an important term. It's going to occur on verse 5, verse 9, verse 23. And it actually bookends these verses from 5 to 23 to be able to help us understand the context. But Jesus says, see that no one leads you. Did you hear me emphasize that when I read the text? Who is Jesus speaking to when it says you? He's speaking to the four disciples in verse 3. See to it that you, disciples, are not led astray. He, he wants the disciples to understand what he is teaching. He wants them to see what they need to see so that when the time comes and these things begin to unfold, that they understand and they're not led astray. Then look at verse 14. But when you see, speaking to the four disciples, the abomination of desolation standing there where he ought not to be, and then Mark says something very interesting in the next phrase. Let the reader understand. 
Mark has two horizons that he's working with here. He's giving the details of Jesus' answer to the disciples, but he's also teaching his original audience, most likely a group of Christians in Rome. He says here, as I'm unpacking the details of Jesus' answer, I want the reader to understand. We'll unpack what that actually was, not just in this sermon, but in the next one as well. Because, by the way, I didn't mention this. This is a multiple-parter. He's very interested in his disciples' understanding. He's very interested in the audience of Mark's gospel to understand. And he's very interested, as we read the rest of Scripture, in his people to understand. Beloved, this is less about timing and signs and more about understanding the who. So friends, what this chapter reveals is that Jesus wants us to see what we need so that we can understand. Number two, he wants us to see what we need so that we can be on guard. So that we can be on guard. The teacher has taken a posture of teaching sitting He's teaching these four disciples so that they understand, but then he uses this verb, see, or be on guard, because he wants them to be ready. Verse 5, be on guard so that you are not led astray. Verse 11, be on guard so that you will not be anxious. Be anxious. Verse 23, so that you will not be led astray. Why? Because there will be claims by people in the disciples' day that they are Christ or that they're speaking for Christ. And for us, we would say, well, wouldn't the disciples have been able to understand and to be able to recognize that? Not necessarily. Remember the disciples and where they are in progressive history. In fact, I was talking to somebody in between the service, and he said, well, you know, they they had revelation. Well, they didn't have revelation at this time. John wrote the book of Revelation years after the gospel of Mark was written. And in the context of the questions that these four disciples were asking, you have to understand, they are at the precipice of being handed off the mission of the gospel with their leader leaving them. It's not like a graduate of seminary who, when he gets out into ministry, can pick up the phone and call his teacher. It's not like the pastor who is in ministry that can go and sit down with the mentor, grab a coffee and say, okay, I've got all these questions. Help me out. Their rabbi would be gone. And so there is a tension that Jesus knows that even the disciples didn't know at this point. And that is, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. There will be many who claim that they are the Christ. But then not only that, Look at what it says in verse 11. They will bring you, disciples, to trial and deliver you over. I don't know about you, but if I was going to be delivered over to a court and my life hung in the balance, I'd want to make sure I was thoroughly equipped. But what Jesus says to these disciples is, do not worry beforehand about what you will say because you will be given what to say by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is speaking specifically to the four disciples who asked the question, and we see this play out in the book of Acts, don't we? Remember in Acts 3 and 4 when, when, when Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, the very people who just a few weeks before had condemned Christ to death, they are brought before the Sanhedrin and they speak boldly because the Holy Spirit spoke through them. That's pretty cool. That's fulfillment of this. 
But then verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put, be, put to death. And then it will say, you will be hated by all. Wouldn't you think the gospel of the creator of the universe would be well-received by his creation? And, and I think the disciples would have likely had those expectations. I was talking to a gentleman this last week who's going to be a professor over at a seminary in the Middle East. He talks about how excited the seminary students are to go back to their predominantly Muslim countries thinking, man, if I had my eyes open to the gospel, surely my countrymen will. Doesn't always work that way, does it? Jesus is revealing this truth to the disciples for their specific context so that they can be on guard. You ever had a game changer event in your life? I remember three in particular in my life. I remember the best spring training that I had in my career. I remember going to the front office and having people from the front office in Philadelphia saying, hey, we hear you're going to be in Philly this fall. And I'm thinking everything is falling into place. And the very next day I was released. I remember in seminary living in Los Angeles with two little kids and my wife and working full time and going to school full time. A year and a half in, I was walking out of a chapel, heading to my next class, saw on my phone that my boss was calling me, and he told me on that call that they were having to make cuts, and my job was one of them. I remember just a few years ago, we had three beautiful girls, and we were expecting our fourth child, most likely a girl, and my wife coming to me and telling me that she was bleeding, and we had our miscarriage. See, it's one thing when you have a game-changing event and you can see the signs, you can see things, and it's like, yeah, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. It's another thing when the rug gets taken out of you unexpectedly. For the disciples up to this point, for, for them, the, the dwelling place of God was surely going to be something that lasted forever. Surely it was going to be something that God himself would perfect, protect. And now Jesus the Messiah was saying, it's going to be destroyed History tells us that it was destroyed in 70 AD. That's what Jesus is referring to here. And again, I live in the tension, and I acknowledge there are people who would see this differently. I agree with what Kent Hughes says, but as I'm studying through this and looking at what Mark has been writing and looking at the text, this seems to be the proper conclusion. What Jesus is saying is don't be surprised. Don't be led astray. Don't be anxious when things like this happen. Why? Because God is on the throne, which brings us to number three. We see what we need to see to recognize God's sovereignty. We see what we need to recognize God's sovereignty. Three times the Greek term is translated, it must or it was necessary. Two of them are positive, one of them is negative. Look at verse 5, see to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come to me, come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. There's that word. 
Wars and rumors of wars must take place. What is Jesus saying to those disciples here? Well, it's continued when it says in verse 8, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. What he's saying here is know that these bad things are going to happen, but understand their role in redemptive history. Twice he says, it's not the end. In verse 7, he literally says that, but the end is not yet. In verse 8, he says this is the beginning of the birth pains. What is he referring to with the end? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. Up to this point, there's no terminology that would lead those four disciples to think that Jesus is talking about the end times. That there's nothing up to this point that would lead Mark's readers to think that Jesus is talking about the end times. They would clearly understand this to be referring to the end being the destruction of the temple. Which is important when you look at verse 10. The gospel must be, there's the word again, proclaimed to all nations. Some people have read this phrase and said, well, this is the mandate from God, that until the end times happen, every corner of the globe must have the gospel preached. But I think if you look at how this phrase is used in the Bible, that's not what this is saying. We'll put some references up on the screen so that you can write these down and study them later. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Colossians 1, verse 6 and verse 23. And Romans 16, verse 26. All of these include phrases like this one in Mark 13 that seem to be literally talking about every corner or literal details of every person. And yet as we study the text in those passages, we know it's hyperbole. And as you study the book of Acts, what you realize is that the gospel does go to all nations. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. But what Jesus is referring to, informing the disciples about is that bad things are going to be the catalyst for this to happen. See, the temptation we have is that when we experience massive life-impacting events, we think this is it, don't we? I mean, think about it at a global level. In 1918, the, the, the people of this planet must have thought this was the end with the Spanish flu. In the 1930s and the 1940s, as they were recovering at a global level from the Great War, World War I, to hear the wars and rumors of wars, they must have thought this is the end. The Jews in 1930s and 1940s with the Holocaust must have thought this is the end. But even think in our lifetime, what we've seen over the last couple weeks, we might have been tempted to think this is the end. With natural disasters in 2004 with the tsunami, we might have thought this must be the end. In 2010 with the earthquake in Haiti, we might have thought this must be the end. But what Jesus is telling the disciples is, listen, this is part of living in a fallen world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be nation that rises up against nation. There will be kingdoms that rise against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. This is part of living in a fallen world. And God uses those in his sovereignty to accomplish his will. So don't be anxious. Then look at verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation 
standing where he must not be. There's the third instance of the word. God had designed for the holy of holies in the temple to have a one person who is necessary for only that person to stand in that area one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. This was for the holiness of God's people. This was for the protection of God's people. This was symbolic to communicate redemptive historical understanding to God's people. And so if somebody was unauthorized to be in the Holy of Holies, that would have been an abomination of desolation. Daniel actually prophesied that there would be an abomination of desolation in the temple. Daniel 9, 27. Daniel eleven thirty one, Daniel 12, and verse 11. And as we study scripture, there were three times that this took place. The first time was B.C. 167 with Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Seleucid king who rode into Jerusalem, entered into the temple, went into the Holy of Holies, and historians tell us that he sacrificed pigs, which would have been an abomination. Thankfully, the Maccabees were successful in their war, and they restored the holiness of Israel, restored the temple, restored temple worship. But Jesus is saying there will be another event when someone else will go into the place where they should not be. This will be an abomination of desolation. And as best as we can tell, this took place around 70 AD. Some believe it was the zealots in 67 or 68. I think it was actually when Roman future emperor Titus came into Jerusalem, into the temple, and desecrated the temple with his Roman soldiers. But then there's also going to be another time in 2 Thessalonians 2 when the man of lawlessness will commit an abomination of desolation. What Jesus is referring to here, as best as we can tell in verse 14, this is a literal event that preceded the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So even the most life-impacting events are sovereignly controlled by our God. That seems to be the purpose of what Jesus is revealing here. Not so that we can put events on charts. Not so that we can wake up in the morning and watch the news and to hear about wars and rumors of wars and say, oh, it's the end times. Jesus is saying when we live in a fallen world, these events will happen. And guess what? God is sovereign and he even uses those to accomplish his will. Therefore, we should not be anxious. We should not be led astray. We should be secure in our confidence in God. Which leads us to number four. We see what we need to be saved. We see what we need to be saved. Look at verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, what days? The days surrounding the destruction of the temple in AD 70, no human being would be saved. Again, I, I know these passages are often attributed to the end times, and, and we'll get there in the next part of this series. Jesus, up to this point, is speaking specifically to the disciples. Mark alludes to his readers in verse 14, but then he comes back to the context. And what is the context? The context is that the Lord is in control, even in these horrific events surrounding the destruction of the temple. 
But it says that God has a purpose in the midst of all of this. It says, verse 20, for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Do you see that in the text? The word chose, I'll have the team put a definition up in the screen, is to make a special choice based on significant preference, often implying a strongly favorable attitude toward what or whom is chosen. I love that. And friends, I love the doctrine of election because it humbles us. If you ever see somebody teach the doctrine of election in a boastful or prideful way, they don't understand the doctrine of election. That God chose me, Jeff Terrell, that on a day in September in 1987, on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he took rebellious Jeff, Living for himself, Jeff. Jeff, who did not desire the things of God at a heart worshipful level, and took all of that and replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh, replaced my deaf ears with ears that could hear, replaced my blind eyes with eyes that could see, granted me faith, granted me repentance, so that, a, like a baby who was able to breathe oxygen for the first time, I responded to the gospel. That's humbling. It's not a source for pride. I brought nothing to the gospel table of negotiation. Trust me, there is no table of negotiation. And so I love this doctrine of election because it reminds us that it is his sovereign choice. It is his affection that he places on some. I don't understand it completely, but it points me to God and it humbles me. That's awesome. And so Jesus refers to that, and he says, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days so that people could be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I I read this, and I think, where's the salvation in this? I mean, it talks about a tribulation that occurs that has never been seen since creation, nor never will be, which, by the way, beloved, I, I want to submit to you that that's hyperbole. I don't think this is Jesus saying the literal events that surround AD 70 will be so bad that no events like it will ever occur. I don't think that's what he's saying. I will say to you that as we study the history of AD 70 and the invasion of Rome and you look at the atrocities, including so many Jews being crucified outside of Jerusalem that they ran out of wood, I think the people who lived this would say, yes, that was fulfilled. But the point was not, I don't believe Jesus explaining details that allow us to neatly put them on a timeline chart. I think Jesus is warning that original audience and those four disciples that, listen, things will get really bad in this fallen world. And the flame of the temperature of persecution will be turned up to places we can't even imagine for God's people. But in the midst of that, they will be saved. I had a family friend a few years ago who was saved from addiction, had many years of victory, but then through decisions that he made, put himself back in the slavery of that addiction. And in a moment of clarity, someone observed him one evening calling out to the Lord saying, Lord, save me from this. And the next day, God did by calling him home. 
And friend, I think the thing that we need to remember that Jesus is revealing here is God will save his elect. Some he saves physically. That's the warning that we see in verse 14. Let the reader understand and let the disciples understand that when this abomination happens, let those who are in Judea, in that physical region, that, that again seems to be pointing to the fact that Jesus is not talking about the end times. He's talking about the Middle East just before the invasion of Rome, just before the destruction of the temple, that those in Judea, when you see this happen, flee, get out of there, Physically, you could be saved. But then he also says, may this not be during the winter. Why? Because in the winter in the Middle East, the, 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 the rivers and the, the water swelled and it's very difficult to cross. Pray that there's not women who are pregnant because it's very difficult to travel when you're pregnant. Pray that you're not nursing children in that time because it's very difficult to flee. You just need to get out of there because some of you will be physically saved. But then he says, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's most likely the end of their lives. He says in verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Listen, disciples, this is going to happen. It's going to happen in your lifetime. Be prepared. You have what you need. Now, summary of where we are so far. Jesus, for those four disciples, pulled back the curtain to let them know that this massive building, this source of national pride, the very place where God's presence dwelt, would be destroyed in their lifetime. He revealed to them that the circumstances leading up to it are going to be horrific, but he revealed what they needed to know so that they would understand, so they would recognize his sovereignty so that they would be on guard, so that they would be saved either physically or to be taken home. And again, when we study the book of Acts, we see all of this play out, don't we? Some were executed, some were imprisoned, but the gospel expanded to the nations. Now at this point, nothing in this text seems to refer to the end times until we get to verse 24. And so to study that, you're going to have to come back next time.